Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, if we've never met, my name is Jay, part of the team here. Uh, our team sent me that video about Bob earlier this week, and I, I watched it like three or four times. Not because I'm holy, but because the first time I watched it, I knew where we were going to show the video in the service. And the first time I watched it, I just thought, I can't preach after that video. Um, so I watched it three or four times, I think more than that. And then obviously we had our 9 a.m. service, and I was like watching it three, four. I was trying to make the video super emotionally boring for myself. It's like I want to watch it so much I have no reaction so I can preach a sermon. And then, I was, and then it didn't work. At the 9 a.m. it didn't work. And then I thought to myself, well, okay, I got through the 9 a.m., and maybe the 1045 would be better, and it's not better. I don't I don't. Um, Some of you are here for the first time today, and you're like, is this guy like always this emotional? <laughs> this guy's a wreck. Why do they give him a microphone? <laughs> Ask people around you. I'm not. I promise I'm not. Please come back next Sunday. <laughs> I'm emotional because um, like <clears throat> this morning I was, I was shaving, getting ready to come to church. I do shave, by the way. You're like, you have to shave? I do a little bit. <laughs> like twice a month or something. And uh, I was shaving and I was thinking to myself, dude, I really hope the Niners win today. Like a 1-0 start would be really great. Um, but who cares, you know? That's, yeah, that's the stuff that really matters. You know, maybe you're here and... Um, a friend invited you or like a family member made you go to church or something and the church thing, the religion thing, like a, a first century Jewish rabbi dying and coming back to life thing, all of that to you maybe is just like nonsense. And if that's you, I get it. I spent a significant portion of my life um, thinking the same thing. I get it. It's sort of unfathomable. Um, and, but I can tell you, I have staked my life on the possibility that new life is possible today for you and for everybody. And uh, that's been my prayer leading up to today, that we would all experience that, that new life. So let's pray, and then um, and we'll get into our teaching. Jesus, we come to you and we, um, we thank you for the new life that you've given Bob, that he's, he's realized now that you have been chasing him all his life and that now he's been found. And we pray that for each and every one of us in this room, whether we've been with you, following you for many years or we're far from you, we just pray that for every single one of us in this room, everyone in the theater, and watching online, we pray that you would make known to us in such a tangible way this morning how, how far you would go, the heights you would climb, and the depths you would descend to find us and help us to be found. 
pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's begin here. I want to show you a photo. This is uh, from about five years ago. And this is a photograph from the grand opening of a boutique shoe store in Los Angeles in a very, in the fashion district of Los Angeles. Um, the, the Italian shoe designer, uh, Bruno Palessi, um, decided to open his very first boutique shoe shop, high-end shoes, in, in the States. And, and understandably so, he opened the shop, uh, the store, the boutique store in the fashion district of L.A. And so when, when Bruno Palessi opened his store, um, they had a whole marketing campaign. They invited a bunch of social media influencers and fashion journalists, and it was like this big deal, and he was unveiling all of his new shoe designs. The cheapest pair of shoes that were on sale at this grand opening was $200. That was the cheapest pair. The shoes ranged all the way up to $500,000, dollars So all of these LA fashionistas, you know, show up, and they're just buying up these shoes because these shoes, they're going to be the first people to have these. You know what I mean? And one of the few people to have these. So they're paying 200, 500, 1,000, 1,500 bucks for all of these shoes. And it's this incredible event and fashion journalists and photos and Instagram, all of that is happening, except there was a catch. And the catch is there is no Italian designer named Bruno Palessi. And attached to that catch is that every shoe that was sold that night for 200 to $1,500, every shoe was actually from the inventory of the discount retail shoe store, Pay Less Shoes. <laughs> and their actual retail value of these shoes ranged between $20 and $50. And at the end of this incredible event, the organizers reveal to everybody there is no Bruno Palessi. Palessi is a play, play on the word pay less. And you just paid $1,000 for a $40 pair of women's high heels. And it, eventually they gave everybody their money back and let them have the shoes for free. Now, this is like obviously an incredible marketing campaign. But, but more than a clever marketing campaign, the Palessi prank is a social experiment. It's a social experiment intended to expose the great heights and the great lengths many people, including us, will go to achieve some form of cultural clout, to be the greatest, to elevate ourselves above the fray, right? To be exceptional, to stand alone, to be first, to be the best, to be the greatest. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, not all of us, most of us don't care this much about shoes. I know we've got the sneaker heads in the room, and some of you do care that much about shoes. But the majority of us don't care that much about shoes necessarily. But there's something for almost all of us. And we, you know, we're way too sophisticated to say, like, I want to be the greatest. That's just off-putting if you say that to somebody. Um, but when we're really honest with ourselves, when we think about our actual internal condition and the pressure and the anxiety we feel to climb whatever ladder, social, career, family, whatever it might be, whatever ladder is in front of us, and when we're really honest with ourselves, our own sort of dangerous willingness to step on a few people if we need to, to climb that ladder, when we're really honest about that, for most of us, maybe for all of us in some form or fashion, there is a part of us at least that wants to be great, wants to be exceptional, wants to be first, wants to be the only one. 
Uh, for the last year and a half, almost two years now, you and I have been, if you've been around, you and I have been making our way slowly through this biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew or the Good News. That's what that word means, the Good News of Jesus, according to the biographer Matthew. And today we arrive at a part of the story where Jesus, and he's done this many times throughout the story, but once again, Jesus redefines greatness in God's kingdom. So let's just read it, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples, these are Jesus' closest friends, right, his best buddies. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, okay, Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's interesting, um, there are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. They're the first four books of the New Testament. And there's another biographer of Jesus named Mark. And in Mark's version of this story, he gives us a little bit more color. So Mark's version of the story says this, Mark 9. They, Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum, this little town. And when he, Jesus, was in the house... He asked them, the disciples, they, they arrive at this house, and then Jesus asks them after they arrive at this house, hey, what were you guys arguing about out on the road? But they, the disciples, kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So that's what's happening here in Matthew. Jesus has these 12, uh, like, friends, close friends who've been journeying with him spending every waking and sleeping moment with Jesus for a handful of years. And it would make all the sense in the world because at this point in the story, what you and I know is that Jesus is, he, they are beginning to believe this is not just a great teacher. Jesus is not just like an awesome Jewish rabbi or an incredible prophet or an amazing teacher of God's word. This guy is something special. So it makes sense that his closest friends would consider that and think to themselves, okay, Jesus is clearly number one. Who's number two? Is it me? And they, it, it gets so intense, they start arguing about it. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's number two? This is interesting because it's so common throughout the Bible. In fact, throughout the scriptures, we see this constant struggle for worldly or earthly or social greatness over others. Some of you who are familiar with the biblical story, you go back to the very beginning. You have this, um, you know, in the opening chapters of the Bible, you have this young man named Cain. And he's got a younger brother named Abel. And Cain is like enraged with jealousy because he believes that Abel is greater in the eyes of God than he is. So what does Cain do? He murders his own brother. You have the story of Joseph. Some of you know Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know that Broadway show. Was it a Broadway show? I don't, it was a Broadway show. Of course, Rachel is, yes, yes it was. I've seen it 28 times. Um, So yeah, so that story is a real story in the scriptures. And what is that story? There's this young man who's one of the youngest brothers out of a, a set of 12. And his older brothers see their younger brother And it seems like their younger brother is uniquely beloved by their father. So these older brothers are like, they are so desperate to be greater than their younger brother. What do they do? They toss him into a cave, uh, into a well, and they sell him to slave traders. You think about the Psalms. Some of you have read the Psalms. And a good portion of the Psalms were written by King David. 
But before David was king, he was a little shepherd boy from a no-name town. And the king of the land at that time wasn't David. He was a shepherd boy. It was a man named Saul. But God begins moving in and through David. And Saul, the king of the land, is again overwhelmed with rage because this little shepherd boy seems to be garnering more public greatness than him. So what does Saul do? He literally chases the shepherd boy, trying to kill him. Over and over again, we see this struggle for worldly greatness. These are just three out of dozens of examples I could show you in the scriptures. And here's the thing. The Bible, I think, is the, the it's hands down the most accurate depiction of human experience in all of literary history. Whatever you do or don't believe about the scriptures, it is the most accurate and raw and honest depiction of human experience in all of literature. And so what that means is this struggle for greatness, we see it in our, in our world today. You know, it was like the myth of progress because of science and technology and economic wealth and on and on that like, you know, newer generations of humans are um, just better or creating a better world or whatever, right? But then you, just like social scientists have talked about this, and it is debated. People like Steven Pinker would say otherwise, but you cannot argue the facts. The 20th century, the world had more wealth and more stability in some ways and more comfort and certainly way more technology and knowledge and information than any generation of humans before us. And also in the 20th century, we killed each other at a rate unseen before in human history. Like, you would all agree, our world is not as it should be. And yet we have the internet and Instagram and DoorDash or whatever, right? Why is the world as it is? It's because we believe the myth that if we just have more stuff, more knowledge, more money, more information, we can make the world the sort of utopian dream that um, people say is possible. The reality is this constant struggle, not just in the Bible, but in our world and in our hearts, this constant struggle for greatness, to climb the ladder, to be better, to be first, to be the best, it always involves a couple of really key elements. It involves lots of elements, but two key elements. It always involves isolationism and exceptionalism. Um, our friend Steve Cuss, in his fantastic book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, he describes it this way. It's really helpful for me. He says, whether your tendency is toward isolationism, the idea that no one understands, nobody gets it, just me, or exceptionalism, nobody else could do it the way I can. I'm the best. I, I am, it's me and only me. Only I can get this done. Whether your tendency is toward isolationism or exceptionalism, the danger is the same. It is the need to feel like you are the only one. The, one of the primary dangers of this climb toward greatness is that it leaves us utterly alone. In fact, this isn't just an idea I'm positing to you. Lots of psychological research and sociological research has been done. And this is kind of a general statement. It's not universally true. But what the research tends to reveal to us is that the people, the men and women on our, plan on our planet who have achieved the most, at least on paper, worldly cultural success, they are the men and women who would tell you that they feel the most 
alone. Some of you know what that feels like with firsthand experience. Like you thought you would climb that ladder and you would reach the mountaintop and upon that mountaintop would be the masses who become your family, your community, applauding you and cheering you on. But you, re- you achieve that mountaintop and you realized it's a lonely place. You're not alone. Like in that feeling even, you are actually not alone. So I want to ask you just quickly, just briefly, to consider for yourself in your pursuit of greatness, whatever, whatever it might be, maybe it's career, maybe it's your social life, maybe it's finances, maybe it's family or kids or marriage or relationship, whatever it might be, in your pursuit of greatness, even though you're way too sophisticated to call it greatness, in your pursuit, what is your tendency? Is it isolationism? And nobody understands. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets me. Or is it exceptionalism? Only I can do this. Me and only me. Which is it? Consider that question for a moment. And I would invite you, I just want to offer you something practical that I think could be helpful for some of us. Uh, In the last year, our discipleship and formation team, they have launched a new sort of um, uh, movement in our um, discipleship pathway. And it's a component called mentoring. Now, I'm looking around the room. I know some of you have actually connected with our mentors, and I've gotten emails from a few of you about how impactful it has been. I actually think connecting with someone who has gone before you, our mentors are vetted. They are wise, um, pastoral, passionate about Jesus. Many of them have been to that lonely mountaintop um, and can tell you with sobering reality what it's really like up there. And... um, it's, it's had such an impact on so many of us who, who have gone and connected with a mentor. So for you, if, whether it's isolationism or exceptionalism or something else, um, if you want one of the best ways to sort of fight against those tendencies is to not be alone and to, to be with someone who's there primarily just to hear you and receive your story and journey alongside you for a little while. So if you're interested in that, you can talk to anybody out at the table after the service today, or you just go to our website, westgatechurch.org slash mentoring. Really easy. Westgatechurch.org slash mentoring, and you'll be able to see all of our mentors and connect. And I think that might be helpful for some of us. Okay, so let's get back to the text. Now, Jesus responds to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? By redefining greatness, this is something he's done throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He redefines greatness by highlighting the most socially insignificant and relationally reliant people in his day. Now, this is not what you and I typically think of when we think of greatness, socially insignificant and relationally reliant. When we think of great people, we think of those who are socially really significant and relationally self-sufficient. They don't need help. They're great. This is literally the opposite. Let me show you. Matthew 18, verses 2 to 5. He, Jesus, called a little child to him. And he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever, this is the key, whoever, young and old, rich and poor, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Okay, let's do a little bit of history. When we think about children today, we just prayed for students and our teachers, and but teachers, like we're all like, yeah, kids and next generation, we love them. We gotta invest in them. They're the future. You know, we do all of that thing. But look at the faces of the elementary school teachers in this room. They're just, they know the truth that little children are hellions, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. This text to us, because for those of you who grew up in Christian homes, you went to like grandma's house and grandma had like a pastel painting of Jesus and he's like glowing and there are these beautiful, cute little Gerber baby type children all surrounding him. And you're like, yeah, this story is so awesome. That's not how this story would have been understood. At the time of Jesus, in the first century Greco-Roman world, there were very key categories in, within society. Now, one of the ways, one of the primary ways they would break down these categories or the hierarchy of society at the time of Jesus looked like this. I'll show you this next slide. At the top of the social hierarchy in Jesus' day were men who were citizens of the Roman Empire. If you were a man and you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, you were cruising. It was like, man, I'm, I'm living large. I have respect, the admiration of uh, culture and society, like you're at the top of the food chain. One notch below male citizens would have been women who were also citizens of the Roman Empire. So they certainly did not have it nearly as good as the men, but they were still considered, okay, you're a Roman citizen, great, wonderful, you've got, you know, like you've got what you need to, to make it. At the very bottom, the very bottom of the social hierarchy, at the time of Jesus, were slaves who were not considered people, they were considered property. Barbarians, these were all of the people who lived in the unconquered lands surrounding the empire. Barbarians were essentially considered animals. And believe it or not, the next generation, children. Children were not looked at as like, man, we gotta invest and pour in and educate them and love them and nurture them, none of that. Children were considered the lowest strata of social hierarchy. In fact, at the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire, when a new baby was born, some of this is gonna get a little bit hard to hear, but it is history and it matters. When a new baby was born, for the first week, actually for the first eight days for girls and then for the first nine days for boys, that baby was not considered human. Legally, that baby was considered the property of the father of the family. Like property like a jar or a, a, a fork or something. Seriously, like just property. That's, that's how babies were considered. And by the eighth or ninth day, if that baby had not been publicly embraced by the father into the family there was a small household ritual that would take place. This is at the time of Jesus. Roman families would take the newborn child, eight or nine days old, they would lay the baby literally on the floor in one of the rooms in the house. The entire household, the family and slaves would all gather and circle around the newborn laying on the floor. The father of the house, the pater familias, the father, the male figure, would arrive and the father would have a choice to make. 
if the father knelt down low and picked up the child and embraced the child, it was a sign that this child was now a human and that the child had now officially entered into this family. But if the father looked at the child, turned his back toward the child, and walked away, then one of the servants or slaves in the household would literally discard the child like trash. There are um, entire pits. We'll talk more about this a little bit later in the text. There are entire pits where they have excavated from the time of Jesus hundreds of the bones of hundreds of newborn children. This is common practice. In fact, the majority of infant girls were discarded at this time. And children who were born with any sort of abnormality were also discarded. This is disgusting and evil and vile. Now, the way newborns were treated at the time of Jesus, is a, it's emblematic of how society as a whole saw young people in general. Because not much really changed, even if a child was embraced into the family, not much really changed as they grew a little bit older. They were still treated, again, like the barbarians and slaves. In fact, young people, kids, little children, they would not achieve any sort of upward mobility in the social hierarchy until they reached young adulthood, and specifically when they could finally contribute socially and economically to the well-being of the family. And so Jesus' claim that whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven flies in the face of, his, of the culture of his day. And Jesus also makes clear that this is about more than just literal little children. He is using their position in the social hierarchy of the day to make a key point that he cares and is passionate about anybody who feels that they are weak and marginalized, ostracized and forgotten. He makes this really clear as the text continues. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, not just children, but he clarifies, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life, life in God's kingdom, maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life, life in God's kingdom, with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Let's talk about, there's a lot happening here. First, when Jesus talks about little ones, that phrase little ones is a single Greek word. It's the Greek word mikros. It literally means smaller or little. And that single word, mikros, is a word that describes more than just little children. It's a word that describes anyone, again, who, who feels weak, or marginalized, ostracized, forgotten. Anyone who lacks power or authority or influence. Anyone who feels unseen or unnoticed. So Jesus is making clear here, when he says, those who believe in me, he's making clear that he is now talking, not just about little children, he's talking about anyone and everyone 
who embraces the humility and the risk of believing in him and following him. And it takes humility to believe in and follow Jesus. And it is, especially even today in our culture, it is a risk to believe in and follow Jesus. You, just the fact that you are at church today, you are less than 10% of the Silicon Valley. 90-something percent, totally unchurched. The fact that you're here makes you the minority. It makes you, in some strange way, in, it put, places you in the margins. Jesus is talking about anybody who is willing to take the risk, not just of sort of like social um, backlash, like, oh, you go to church? You sing those weird songs to a God you can't see? You think that a first century Jewish teacher died and came back to life seriously? I mean, that alone puts you in the margins. But beyond that, to commit your life to Jesus and to say, my life is not my own. It belongs to you because I trust you. I trust your love for me, that you are gonna take me to places I want to go but cannot get to on my own. That takes so much humility. It takes a position of lowly, lowliness to do that, does it not? That's what Jesus is saying. He talks about the fire of hell here. Now, hell's not necessarily fun to talk about, but Jesus talks about it a lot. We've preached on it before. We don't have time to deep dive into it, so let me just summarize. Hell is the reality of an eternity apart from God. It is real, and Jesus talks about it a ton. On the other side, heaven would be what we understand as God's space, where God rules and reigns for his glory and for the flourishing of all. And God's promise, the biblical promise, is that someday heaven, God's space, will collide and become one with earth, human space. And when that day comes, earth, human space, the world we inhabit now, will be transformed in what the scriptures call a new heaven and a new earth, it will be transformed to work toward, again, God's glory and for the flourishing of all. The very last book in the New Testament, last book in the Bible called Revelation, this writer, John, has this like epic vision of what will happen on that day when Jesus returns. It's a day we have not yet arrived at, but he has this vision of what that day will look like. And he writes this in Revelation 21, 3 to 5. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling, his dwelling place is now among the people and God will dwell with them. He will dwell with us. They or we will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then look at this. He will wipe on that day when heaven and earth become one. On that day, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne, Jesus said, I am making everything new. If you've been around Westgate for a while, you've heard me say this. I apologize if it feels rote to you, but for me, this is the thing. And here's what I would say. Maybe you're here and you don't buy any of this. 
You don't think there's a God in heaven or that Jesus, this first century rabbi, came, lived, died, and rose again from the grave. You don't buy any of it. Fair enough. I spent many years of my life not buying it either. But here's where we can agree. I don't even know all of you, but I know this about everyone in this room, in the theater, watching online, every single one of us. Even if we don't believe any of this, we want all of this. Every single one of us. We all want a world where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There's not a single person here today that would hear those words and think like, eh, it doesn't sound that great. Every single one of us want this. And for me, I have staked my life on the possibility and the hope that this day is coming, that this is the future, and that God's desire is for all of us, especially those of us who, like children in the first century, feel weak and lowly and forgotten and unseen. God's desire is that all of us would find our way into this future reality. This is why he says at the end of this story, Jesus says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. But what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I'm gonna invite Les and the team to come back up and we're gonna respond and sing together here in a moment. But before we do that, I just wanna give a couple of invitations. To get us there, I'll just share... Excuse me, a couple of brief stories. A number of years ago, when my daughter, I think she was like three or so, um, I had her one day. We didn't have our son, so it was just me and her one day. She's really little, and I took her to the mall. And um, you guys know that store Uniqlo at Valley Fair? It's like, you know, awesome. But um, if you've ever been in there, it's really easy. It's like hard to see in the store. Like the aisles are tall and you go down one aisle and I think this is intentional. All you can see is like that aisle. You know, it's just screaming at you like, buy me, buy me. I'm $9.99, buy me, you know. And so I'm at Uniqlo with my daughter. We're just walking around. I'm looking for shirts and stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm I just, I find myself totally distracted. I got my little girl, she's three, and I've got a few shirts in, on my arm. And I'm like, you know, perusing the aisles and I'm, I've got, I'm debating like, do I get black, a black shirt or a black shirt? You know, like I'm just doing all of that. And then all of a sudden, I've got a few shirts on my arm and all of a sudden I realize I don't know where my daughter is. I look down and she's nowhere to be seen, she's tiny. And so what do I do in that moment, you guys? I drop everything. I drop everything. Like, do these shirts matter at this point? Who cares? Who cares about shirts? At that point, I'm just screaming her name, Harper, Harper. I'm running around asking people, have you seen a cute, chubby little three-year-old Asian girl? Her name is Harper. Tell her her dad is right here. I'm like running like a madman through Uniqlo because to me at that point, the sort of social norms of how you operate in a department store do not matter. 
They don't matter. I don't care if I'm making a mess. I don't care if I'm bumping into people because what is the only thing that matters? It is that I find my daughter who is lost, yes? Some of you know the name Eugene Peterson. He's the one who wrote, he paraphrased the message paraphrase of the Bible. When he died a number of years ago, we've told this story before. When Eugene Peterson died a number of years ago, his son, Leif, um, gave the eulogy at his memorial service. During the eulogy, Leif Peterson said about his dad, and Eugene Peterson wrote dozens and dozens of books, was one of the most um, influential pastors and thinkers of the 20th century. And Leif Peterson said about his dad, he said, my dad spent decades fooling the world. He said he would write all these books and give hundreds of sermons, thousands of sermons over his ministry life. And all these people think Eugene Peterson had all these different things to say and all of these brilliant sermons. And then Leif Peterson said, my dad only had one sermon to offer the world. Everything he said, everything he did was the same. It was just one sermon. And then Leif Peterson said, the sermon my dad had for the world was the sermon he preached to me into my ear, whispering every night when I was a child, God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, while our paths were headed for an eternity apart from God, Jesus Christ, what does he do? He died for us. Maybe you're here today and you don't necessarily believe this stuff, but something is stirring in you. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've achieved on paper all the success that is imaginable, but something deep inside you feels weak. You feel alone. You feel unseen. You feel unnoticed. Or maybe you believe this stuff, but something is changing in you. You're beginning to realize I've believed it in my mind, but I have not believed it in my heart and in my body and with my life. And something needs to change. Maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you are passionately following Jesus today. You're so far from this. You're like, it's an interesting talk, but I'm not interested. However you feel about any of this, I'm just, I just need to share with you, not as a pastor, just as a human whose life has been dramatically changed because of what I believe to be the, the truest thing in, in all of the universe. God loves you. He's on your side. He has been coming after you for far longer than you can possibly know. And God is relentless. He wants you. There is no height he will not climb. There is no depth he will not descend to get to you. So before we sing and respond, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask everybody in the room to close their eyes, just to create a space here where we can create as much sort of comfort as possible for those who might wanna make a decision today. So we're gonna bring some of the lights down and with every eye closed, I wanna ask a couple of questions. First, I wanna ask a question to those of us in this room who have never said yes 
to the relentless pursuit of a God who loves us, who never said yes to the invitation of Jesus, his death and resurrection, offering us life here and now and on into eternity. Maybe you're new to the church thing. Maybe you're here because you're just desperate for some hope and this is kind of a last ditch effort. Or maybe you grew up going to church like I did and you just grew up in the youth group culture thing or in a particular tradition that your parents sort of forced you to go to and maybe you adopted a sort of religiosity because it's a family tradition but you realize you have never actually, you, with your heart and your mind said, Jesus, I say yes to your incredible love for me. So if there's anyone in the room, and it's okay if there isn't, but if there is anyone in the room with eyes closed, anyone who wants to say yes to Jesus today, his love for you today for the first time, I just want you to raise your hand and keep it raised so I can see it. Yeah, I see you. Yes, I see you. Yep. Okay, you can put your hands down. I want to now ask, again, with every eye closed in the room, maybe there was a season in your life where you were with the 99, so to speak. You were close to God and you felt his presence. You said yes to Jesus and his love for you, his sacrifice for you at some point. But then life happened. You found yourself in the valley or twists and turns you didn't expect or circumstances that you did not want. And you find yourself now having strayed so far off and you look around and you realize, where am I? I want you to know God is closer than you think. He has been chasing you in ways that maybe you have not recognized. So if that's you, and you feel like you have wandered off and you want to say yes to returning in a real way to the family of God today, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, I see you. Yep, yes. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I see you right there. Yes. Again, with every eye closed, let me just pray for all of us in the room. Jesus, we thank you for your incredible sacrifice, the gift of life, your death on the cross and your resurrection over the grave to pay the penalty for our sins, to win victory over sin and death for us and to draw us into the family of God. I, I pray for um, each person today, those who said yes to you for the first time and those who said yes to returning to you on this day. I pray that in this moment by your spirit, you would make your presence and your love and your peace so tangibly real to them and that they would find life, new life, here and now and on into eternity because of the gift of life you offer us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As a church family, can we just celebrate together?
to several who just said yes to Jesus. Let's all stand and sing and respond together.